And welcome, Kim Davalos. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Of course, Christian. So uh, as you enjoy the frozen grape, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, would you like to please open up with a piece and share a little mm-hmm. bit of your artistic side for us? Sure. Can I give context to Sure. I was going through my poems, um, you know, especially given your podcast, trying to relate it to my background. And I came across this poem I wrote maybe when I was in grad school, so about five years ago. So it's interesting for me to reread it and see Mm. where things have changed. And even my writing has changed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought I'd read this one. um, And both of us can revisit it together. Sure. Okay. It is called Third Generation. They smirk and call me the one word they know spites me. Asian. Sometimes I can crack back a smile and laugh it off. Sometimes I just want to crack people in the jaw. I'm not Asian, okay, I used to say. In the neighborhood where I gathered bloody elbows and worn down rollerblade wheels, my brothers and I were one of two colored families. When my relatives came to the United States, they changed the B in Davalos to Davalos to take away the Filipino accent. I didn't have a close Asian friend until I was around 13 years old. When I created my first online screen name, it wasn't Asian Baby Girl or Panay Pride. It was something similar but so different and I knew it. Hawaiian Chick Tutu. Now, the tutu, I'm not sure where my adolescent mind decided to pick that. It's not even my favorite number. But the Hawaiian, a far cry from whatever I understood then was this Asian. Self-branding myself with an Islander label meant I could be something exotic and wanting. It meant smooth hula hips, sweet plumeria lips, and long hair with waves from the sea. Somehow Hawaiian, not Asian, meant boys desiring a better me. It used to be Asian meant the nerdy kid with high waters and impeccable math skills. Asian meant poor. Asian meant smelly fish and crowded markets. It used to be Asian meant embarrassing loud accents. Asian meant cheap flea market bargaining. It used to be Asian meant funny looking eyes to make as a joke. Asian meant fob taunts and foreign odors. Asian didn't mean me. So much identity and denial put into a screen name, symbolizing a fight against my own ancestors, pulling the roots I grew from because it was deemed acceptable, better yet encouraged, to forget who my people are, where they came from, a generational art and struggle to live in disguise. When did being an Asian American become living a double life? I have the accent of a Californian and only know two or three phrases from the Hawaiian, Tagalog, and Ilocano languages. It seems as generations of Asian Americans live on, we lose the lustrous languages of our ancestral tongue, and you can sit back and judge, but I'm not the only one, running to other rooms from friends when mom calls to hide speaking to her in our native tongue. Bleached chemicals, highlighted, stripped, and dyed in our hair to look like a natural blonde. Contacts blue, green, and hazel to mask our real chestnut and mahogany eyes, allowing racial jokes to slide or choosing to not learn your culture to somehow measure up, rejecting our ethnic self to somehow be enough so i smack on a new title calling myself pacific islander telling myself at least it's more in the middle when it's really still denial than question stir what classifies me as either or is filipino asian or asian filipino others call me the same thing as my vietnamese best friend she is nothing like me though Born in Stockton, California, raised, trained, shaped, and brainwashed in America, so was it really ever my choice to forget my people? Asian now means strong hands and oppo struggles. Asian means perseverance in pressing war times and internment camps. Asian means sore bent knees from crop-picking plants. 
Asian means Lolo and Lola sacrifices and bearing six children. Asian means quiet storms with striking thunder. Asian means timeless wisdom. Panakbet, Banankal, Hapia, Sinagong, and rice. Asian means my almond-shaped eyes and round cheeks. Asian is somehow slowly and with work forming into me. And it does take work being immersed in a culture that de- cannot teach you roots and bloodlines like your grandmother. Generational shifts that keep rearranging understanding like silk, time threads, together different generation ties. A generational art and struggle to live in disguise. So when did being Asian American mean living a double life? Mm, snap, snap, snap. It's 2011. Snap. 2011. <laughs> Give me just your first reflection right now as someone reading that mm. from five years ago. Um, the, the writing definitely needs to be more succinct. <laughs> That's the technical part. The, the content, though, it's interesting. Um, I actually think I am in a different place than when I first wrote this, and I'm actually also in the same place at the same time. Um, I think I still ask the same questions in that as I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, I still ask that myself every day. Um, But I do understand more of the context of the... I understand more of why. I I labeled myself certain things in my process. um, And I think I used to really feel ashamed of it and confused. But now I have more of an understanding and compassion for my then self of why I labeled myself Hawaiian or Pacific Islander because mm. I just, I didn't know much. I wasn't exposed. Um, and living here in the Bay Area now, it has taught me so much. And being around a community, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can even drop names of like, we know mutual friends. I didn't get to do that before. So, mm. yeah. That's, and you wrote this when you were in grad school. I did, yes. It's interesting now that you're saying like, oh, I didn't know that that much. Like at that time, but taking into account you were in grad school at that time, right? Yes. That and that's a high second uh, secondary education, or mm-hmm. third, third tertiary, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is such also like I think a very relatable experience. Everybody's aim screen name from before <laughs> was either Dark Boy four 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 or something. And it's like four four four. Where does that come from? I don't know. I, I was just I was like, oh. underscore <laughs> underscore. Mine was Burnt S'more, and I still have that email. Burnt S'more Gmail. That's my junk mail right now because I was called a I was chubby in middle school, uh-huh. and then I was brown, and somebody said, "Oh, you look like a burnt s'more." I was like, "Oh." That's kind of cool. <laughs> but then I would have the others. I was like, how do I do flip side? Flip or side, side. <laughs> yep. The, like the Asian baby girl is the big one for, for girls. And so, but you're saying you still feel a little bit of those questions right mm. now still? I think I, I still ask it all of the time. Um, and I don't think it's ever a question that I'll fully know the answer to. Um, you know, uh, for me as a third generation, it's am I Filipino enough? Am I American enough? Um, and I think that will always feel like it's a struggle um, to feel like enough on either side. Um, so, yeah. And then to your point about being in grad school and asking those questions for the first time. Yeah, it, it makes me think about, you know, as an educator, it makes me passionate about being in education now because I don't want that to happen for another Filipino student. Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, what happened in my education is the thing that I always ask myself. Why 
until I was 22 years old did I ask that question. Mm-hmm. What does that say about my undergraduate education? What does it say about my elementary, uh, elementary is the secondary? No, you said, I don't know what the... Second, yeah, I don't know. Secondary education First? is... Primary. Primary, primary education. education. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I ask myself that question still. I think... Um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever know the answer. I don't think I'll ever... You know, I wasn't born in the Philippines. I wasn't... I don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have this deep yearning to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I see it in the mirror every day. So I want it to be... A connection for me. I want to know my identity at the same time and feel like I belong. Mm. And until I became an educator in this Bay Area community, did I feel like I could really claim that not. And I think the other thing is in that poem that I talk a lot about Asian, I think I would flip it now um, or change it to really focusing on like, what is it the term of being Filipino? If you notice mm. in the poem, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm realizing I came to that more at the end of the piece. And then if I wrote that now, um, like where I'm at now, I would start with the end of that piece being the the conversation. And more dive into the specificity Ste- of mm. being Filipino. Yeah. Uh, but I did like the transition going from not wanting to be labeled Asian and then in the end reclaiming the word of Asian mm-hmm. and what that entails and what that holds. Mm-hmm. That. Um, I want to ask as a kind of transition from the piece can you give me a little bit of a history of how you got into writing poetry Mm. like what was the context what do you do to get into writing poetry yeah um i i started writing i think even when i was in elementary school i was always writing um i would write short stories really Um, in elementary school mm mm-hmm I wrote little like stories. My mom is the biggest one. She always encouraged me to write. And I've always said, it's my goal to publish something before I turn 30, which is next year. Mm. Um, and I want to name it after her because she was always the one that was really encouraging me to keep writing. So I was always writing short stories. And then I eventually started writing poems when I was little because I liked the idea of more simple thoughts. It helped me to process what I had been feeling and thinking better. Um, And then I just wrote throughout middle school, high school. I was still writing just for me. And I would share it with my friends and stuff on binder paper. Um, But I was doing it a lot because I dealt with a lot of mental health issues too. Mm -hmm. A lot of anxiety, depression um, in middle school, high school. And then it wasn't until college too where I internet you know thanks to the internet i was watching uh def jam poetry on youtube um my favorite the one that i always refer to is maida del valle's um to uh one of her pieces on def jam but i saw that piece and to see this woman of color just really being so passionate and vulnerable on stage like that with her poetry and making her words come to life Mm. was amazing to me. And I think I had always been more, people called me shy in like middle school and high school. We could talk about the, you know, the Asian stereotypes around that too, especially Uh for females, uh but that's another conversation. (laughs) But Put on the docket. Yes, (laughs) that's another thing we could talk about. So I was always labeled as shy or quiet, but I didn't feel like I was because I had so much to say and that's why I started writing. But I was like given this expectation like I wasn't supposed to speak or I couldn't speak in these like classes and spaces. So when I saw that... um, and I saw those performances, and I saw Maida de Valle, I was, it gave me the permission to try it. Um, and so I started writing 
a more in a spoken word form. Mm-hmm. And then I went and I did my first open mic at San Diego State. The, yeah, yeah, they were yeah. like, they held one. I remember I was so nervous. And I told my roommate at the time, I was so nervous. So she, what she had me do, she's like, okay, we're going to turn off the lights in this room. And you're going to go t- stand in the corner. And I'm going to sit here. And so, and you're going to recite the poem. That's how bad it used to be that I could not perform. Uh-huh. And I was giving into this mentality. Like I didn't have a voice. Um, I was so nervous that I couldn't even have one of my good best friends in the room with me. I, uh-huh. I'd have to turn off the lights and turn from her to be able to do it. And then, but I did it. And once I did the open mic, it kind of all just kind of spiraled from there. So I did the open mic and the uh, associated students officer that was running the open mic was like, that was amazing. I'm holding a, a competition, a slam mm. um, in a few months. You should come out and compete. And I was like, well, what's a slam? I don't know what that is, but okay, sure. Like, I, I'd gotten such a high and a liberation from doing that first one. Um, I wanted to do it more. So I did the slam. Um, Rudy Francisco was there. Mm-hmm. And I remember, oh, yeah, stepping back. And so after that first open mic, I was going around to other ones around the city in San Diego and just performing. So um, I forget what their big one is called out there, but I went to it and I guess Rudy Francisco was there, who's big in spoken word in San Diego and California and nationally now. Um, And then fast forwarding now to that slam on campus, I'm there, he's supposed to be the feature. I remember walking by him and he's like, excuse me. And I was like, he's going to ask me where the bathroom is. I was like, oh yeah. He's like, and the first poem I ever have done, I could do it if you want me to, is yeah, Lady, yeah, Lady with yeah, a Dirty yeah. Mouth. So I did Lady with a Dirty Mouth at that open mic in a, around the city. He's like, excuse me. He's like, I was like, yeah. He's like, you're the lady with a dirty mouth, aren't you? And I was like, what? He knows who I am. Um, and then I did that slam and I ended up winning. Dope. A $50 bookstore gift certificate. But I was like, wow. It was really starting to validate my voice. And you didn't do poetry before this? Like, that was your first ever open mic? Yeah. Like- At 21. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, something that caught my attention when you were saying about being shy. I just want to ask. Mm. Did, you said that there was that expectation to be shy, that a- Asian stereotype, but you didn't feel shy. But did you end up acting, quote-unquote, shy or quiet or timid in that sense because of that expectation? Uh, no. I was always in my head. I was always, you know, kind of a... I was a rebel. I always was very opinionated. Mm-hmm. I'm strong. I just I was a baby girl of the family. I'm the youngest of three and the only girl. So I, like, had to hold my mm-hmm. own. Um but when I came to being in school, I just kind of sat back and did my own thing. I didn't say anything, didn't speak up, uh, didn't give my opinions on things. But did you feel that you wanted to? Like, you wanted to give mm-hmm. those opinions and all? Actually, yeah, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I felt like I have opinions, but I don't really want to share it because maybe I'm not supposed to be heard. Do you think it was because a, a factor is the Asian stereotype of being the I do. quiet and just sit back and listen and all Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah um and i remember that makes me think about in high school my i only took one ap class in high school um and i remember um i didn't do well on the first exam so i was like study study studied i'm gonna do everything i can to get an a on this because i want to prove to myself i can get an a on an ap test in class I got the I got an A plus and I remember my instructor told me, Wow, I'm really impressed you got an A because most of like the the 
the people you run with, you know, something like that. Like, you all, like, usually don't, like, do AP classes and get uh-huh. good grades. And I was like, what's that mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was my first moment ever in education where I felt like, what are you trying to tell me? Like, overtly saying to me directly, but I think throughout my education had been expected of me to not do well, mm. to be quiet, mm-hmm. just stay in the back. Mm. Um and I think that comes with, like, maybe my teachers, not to knock them, but I never was called on, you know, never asked what I thought. But I was always, and that's where I was, like, always the, the kid, though, that finished my math problems first and yeah. finished my essay first and got the A's, but I was never the one in class to speak up. Mm. Yeah. So for overall context, a little background, just a little speed round of, like, where you grew up and mm. all that stuff. So where were you born? I was born in Stockton, California, Stockton, Central California. Valley, 209. And then you went to high school there. And, and I went... All the way through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went to college. San Diego State. And mm. you got your BA in... Got my BA in psychology, minor in counseling. And then you went to... For your master's... Uh, San Francisco State. The timeline goes, I graduated high school 2006, moved to San Diego. Um, my parents were agreeing that it, they would pay for us. They s- saved all their money. They really valued education. They would pay for our schooling if we graduated in four years. So I had changed my major a few times, oh. really panicking that I was going to finish on time. But it was a good motivation for me to finish in four years, yeah. doing whatever I had to do. And then um, I always knew I wanted to go to grad school. Um, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago why. And I was in a class guest speaking and I realized it's because I saw my mom change her career when I was around 10 years old. She went from being an accountant and a banker, going back to get her master's, raising three kids, being a wife, and she got her master's to be a teacher mm. and changed her career. So I think me seeing that in my household made me want to go. So I graduated 2010 from San Diego State and then literally a week later started moved in to at San Francisco State. And start, that's quick. Usually yeah. people take like a break in between, right. Mm-hmm. right? For their masters. Yeah. And then I did our program is often a three year program and I did it in two years. How come you had that like decision to do counseling too? I wanted to kinda of ask like where did that kind of idea come in? I think, you know, from my own experiences in high school and college dealing, as I said, with mental health, um, under not knowing how to understand it. I was always the one in my family where they said, oh, Kimberly, like you think too much, um, you feel too much. Um, maybe that comes from a very Filipino cultural mentality. Don't talk about things, just mm-hmm. deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know how to deal with it. So, um I, I did a lot of self-harm when I was in high school, middle, middle school, high school, and then even into college. And then in college, I dealt with a lot of academic anxiety, um, really feeling bad on myself that I wasn't performing. Because then it's like, okay, I got to college. I'm going to like make up for the student. Because I also didn't perform the best. It's not like... It's like you're expected to be quiet and perform well, but I didn't have the tools and my parents didn't necessarily expect me to get A's all the time. So I was like, this is my time to make up for it mm-hmm. at San Diego State. And then I was dealing with a lot of academic anxiety. It's like, I'm failing. I'm not being perfect. So going through all that made me very compassionate to want to understand myself, honestly, mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. Um, and have the tools to have the language to help myself and help others. And then I just kind of fell into it. Um I got into the counseling piece because I was actually what's like an 
RA is the academic, yeah. is an academic mentor at San Diego State. So also for free housing. Yeah, After yeah, my yeah. first year being in the dorms, my mom was like, become an RA or something so yeah, we don't yeah, have yeah. to pay for your housing. So I was like, oh, I didn't want to be an RA, but I liked the academic side. So academic mentors at my dorm were the ones to like peer advisors. Oh, live, they got live in free pe- housing too? Yeah. In addition to the RA too? Oh, yes. what the? So I got to learn how to do advising like I do now as an undergraduate and do that helped out my like floor mates. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my first experience with college counseling. Um, and then these other things going on for me personally, like I had academic anxieties and wanting to understand myself kind of all meshed together. And so I, I loved helping other students. I felt a purpose in that mm. and I felt good about myself doing that. Mm. I actually, that's a great topic because I wanted to ask specific questions about your counseling, right? Um, you did the keynote speech at SFSU's oh, yes. um, graduation. That was 2016? Yeah. Is that when you did that? Yeah. Right. And then, which you just mentioned right now, you had a quote there that you have been nearly in a decade-long battle of depression, anxiety, and self-harm. Mm. And that's... I want to just say straight up thanks for being open about that because right now that's a very like important topic especially for the filipino community um i was just with the filipino mental health initiative and they said that in san francisco sfusd for middle school and high school uh, youth within the asian population filipinos have the highest um ideation and planning for suicide Mm. um for middle school and high school they're at 30 Mm percent and they're the highest in that and Mm -hmm. i think it is a very important topic within the filipino american community especially Mm -hmm. but then you say that through the power of love and community from the program my family and myself you've been able to come to feel peace and happiness because hurt people can hurt people Mm -hmm. but you also say that it comes from that self-love Right. Mm -hmm. Could you give me your process of finding that self-love? Like, what did it look like? What were the things you did? What were like the practices? Is it poetry? Is it what is that? uh, What does that look like for you? Hmm. That is a deep question. How much time do we have? Uh, Chop it up. There's no limit. Just whatever you feel, too, because at least just from my experience um, and talking to people, right, like. It is very important. At the core, self-love is what we do need. But sometimes it's a little bit vague of what what is that? How does that look? How do I actually mm. practice that? Um, how do I find the things that will make me actually love myself mm-hmm. in that sense? It's mm-hmm. almost a... Um, it's like an a-, a true answer, but you don't really know what to do with it. it right? th- it's the end goal, but there's yeah. no guidance or markers on the mm-hmm. journey to there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just as an example, what was it like for you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make a good point too, that it, uh, what I can explain worked for me and has been my journey mm-hmm. to getting there and is a constant journey mm-hmm. um, is not going to be yours. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a good context to give. Um, so how did I get to it? Or how do I often have to revisit how to get to it? I think there are key elements for sure. I think, and I had mentioned it in that speech, is community. Mm. So surrounding yourself with people that are providing. I always say, you know, you have to keep the people in your life that are adding to it. And if they are taking away what you are giving, then, you know, wish them well. Um, And you have to make sure to prioritize the people that are 
adding to you, giving you that positivity and love. Mm. Because we are already harsh enough on ourselves, especially as Filipinos. We're already our harshest critics. We don't need to be surrounding ourselves with others. Um, which then I think comes to, so community uh, support, having a tribe. And then um, something that I'm big on lately, and it's been a big thing for me, is boundaries. Um, so boundaries of knowing what is healthy and what is okay and what is not. And as I mentioned, in terms of people in your life, because those are the ones that can feed into that, mm -hmm. but also for yourself too. Um, becoming aware of what are the things in your life that you're allowing for yourself, whether it's your own behaviors and habits, mm -hmm. and that could be in your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing and being able to discern what is okay and what is not and you have to commit to yourself like with my self-harm that was not something that was okay but I convinced myself it was good right I convinced myself that I needed to do that to cope um, but learning like that is not healthy and I need to tell myself I cannot engage in that behavior anymore and those kind of thoughts it's literally like just like you would hold your friend accountable you have to hold yourself accountable like as I start to get in my insecurities of like I'm not good enough for this or that which anxiety and fears and depression stem from I have to recognize in those moments no it's not okay to think that and it's not the best for you you are not your best self by allowing yourself to keep thinking those thoughts mm. let them be and move on to more positive ones go out and have coffee with a friend then mm. that is supportive in my system that will like feed me that positivity and love and vice versa mm. so I say those are two big things right now that's kind of like hard to do though with that with that self checking. I think I've noticed at least for me, mm -hmm. like I know that self checking part, like taking your own advice, is one of the hardest things to do. It's so easy to give it to others, and it's very succinct. And then when you do think about the things that you have to improve on yourself, you can kind of point it out. But when you're in the rush of the moment. And where all the patterns reemerge of unhealthy patterns too, mm -hmm. it's just more, that's kind of the pathways have been wired in your brain mm -hmm. to just be comfortable going down that route, whether it's just surfing Facebook when you're like, you shouldn't, when you shouldn't Instagram. be surfing Facebook, mm -hmm. sitting in front of, I sat on the computer yesterday for four hours writing my essay <laughs> I got two and a half paragraphs I was like this is not good because you're on social media yeah but on some level like there is a necessity to kind of um, gain access to our minds mm -hmm. and like kind of learn how to operate it mm -hmm. right and that's kind of hard yeah it is and like I said that that's why it's a it's a commitment to yourself and it is you're never going to be perfect in it mm. um and you're talking to somebody who has been practicing this kind of uh, being self-aware. And it, you can also call it cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Um, but I don't like to put such a technical term on it. <laughs> um, but you're talking to someone who's been really committed to practicing that since I was what? So like when I started poetry, actually, so 22. Mm. Um, so it's been a few years. And I, I can't say I'm always the best at it. And I think that's something to also know for like listeners, if they're taking this kind of advice, is you're not going to be perfect mm. at it. Mm. There are going to be days where you're on social media for four hours comparing yourself to others and putting yourself into a dark hole. Oh, and that's okay. Um, the, the mutual friend that I just had coffee with, Kai, we were actually just talking about such a great conversation. Um, we were talking about fear. And... Um, and how 
fear can cripple you, how like self-deprecating thoughts can mm-hmm. can make you go into those dark holes. But I'm also big on learning how to be aware of those thoughts, like we were talking about, but making it a part of you and your journey. Because I think the also struggle in this self-love is saying, I don't believe in myself, I'm afraid of it. And then the only way that I can get through that is to disassociate with those thoughts and like say that they're not a part of me and try to like just focus on the positive and be cool. But we all know that and like especially how we're raised in our culture is those are a part of who we are and how can you use those in your journey to motivate you like mm. and so I, I was saying with Kai like you know when you when we're afraid to to not say that you're perfect and you can let go of your thoughts of you're not enough or you're afraid but how can you recognize those and still move forward in whatever you feel like your journey is or your purpose is, or even just throughout the day of saying like, I'm afraid, I don't feel like enough, but I know that's not everything that I am. And I can still go about and pursue this goal, being afraid and feeling like I'm not enough. Mm. But knowing that at the heart of it, I'm worthy at the core of myself to try Mm. and keep going and moving forward. Um, So maybe that's also another key for myself. So it's like not just shutting it or shoving those negative thoughts into a box and no. putting it away, but like accepting that you have those thoughts mm-hmm. or those insecurities and then trying to find the right patterns to, or thoughts to like move forward, yeah. like with them, mm-hmm. even like you're carrying them along still like, ah, oh, they're right here. Like yeah. I shouldn't use them right now, but they're right here in my mouth. Yes. yes. Uh, that's, a, that's an int- I haven't really actually thought of it in that way yeah. of like holding on to those things. It's always been like a, no, change it. I am confident. Right. I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can. I can do this. I'm good. I'm good. And then like doing the, in the mirror, I am strong, <laughs> calm and focused. I am strong. Right. right. right? It's not like... And- And that's okay. And you are, but you're also a hot mess Uh, and nervous uh, and imperfect. And why can't we be both? But I think the way we're raised and brought up is like we have to show perfection and we have to show that we can do that and deny that we ever had any bad thoughts about ourselves. Um, So how do you incorporate it? How do you mm -hmm. like move forward with those then? I think it's um it's pure raw vulnerability and honesty and you know and being authentic in who you are. I come here today and I tell you like, oh, you're telling me you did all this research about me and I'm like in my head I'm like, is there enough on me to research? And then telling you like, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do today. I, like I have all these poems, I guess. Like that's being authentic. Whereas yeah, yeah, I could yeah, come yeah. in today and be like, yeah, so I got my poems and like, oh yeah, you you researched me, yeah, great. Like being all like showing face and like, no, like, um, and that's how I I am as a counselor too. And I think that makes me an effective counselor and, Mm -hmm. and poet and artist is Mm -hmm. I just, I'm okay with being imperfect. I'm okay with saying that I'm nervous. I'm okay with saying that I don't feel good today. Mm. Um, but trusting in me and trusting in you as my community that that's okay. Um, and that's, that's a part of our strength. So as a counselor, um, and for context, I know you work at Skyline College. It mm-hmm. has a high 
Filipino American population, mm-hmm. um, and I'm I'm thinking you have a lot of Filipino American like students that come in for counseling. Yeah. Um, in general, I just want to get like a pulse check on the community. Mm-hmm. What do you see is like the state in general of like Filipino American students that you're seeing here in Daly City and the surrounding areas? What are some of the struggles that you see them facing, mm-hmm. and um, what is the environment like for them? Mm. Such a good question or questions. Um, I think that the pulse of the Filipino youth and and emerging adults, because they are beca- they are their own, they're their own voices and adults now. Um, I think that they are struggling with the permission to be their full selves. Mm. I can say that. Um, there, of course, it it is. So I context my primary role at skyline college is i am a lead counselor for a new program called the promise program that allows first year students to get their tuition and books paid for if they are enrolled full-time and then they work with a designated counselor me um to build out their ed plans and goals so i have a lot of this is our first semester with the new students and i do have a lot of filipino students i was asked what's your educational goal what do you want to do in terms of major a lot of them are saying female and male uh, nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens though, halfway through the semester, I get a lot of breakdowns, a lot of crisis of this is not what I want to do with my life, but I don't know how to tell my family. I don't know what else there is. I don't want to disappoint. Um, and then there that comes in a lot of sadness, I think, and a lot of um, I want to do something else other than this, but I don't have the tools. Mm. So I think that is the struggle. And I think very similar for me. It was, I felt like I had this inkling of what I wanted to do, but I didn't know. I didn't, we didn't have the resources um, to know what are the what are the various ways you can obtain um, having a purpose, making good money, but also giving back to your community. And mm-hmm. in, in not just in the medical field, mm-hmm. or not just even in education, what are the options? So... Yeah, so come back. So what I think that um, students, where they're at, in, is that they are, they're a bit, they're suffocating a bit. Um, and that, that, that makes sense with the, the stats that you had told me about. Um, they aren't given the spaces to express themselves and even to just to have these vulnerable conversations. Do you think that's familial, as cultural? Like, where do you mm-hmm. think the pressure is coming from um, to not be able to, like, be their true selves, fully expressed? You know, I think it's cultural. I think it's familial, just community-based. And I don't think it is to knock any of our elders either. I don't think it's like, was ever say, like my Lola, it's her intention that I'm miserable. I think they actually came here for the opposite, right? I think it's that the lack of knowledge for our first, second generation of family, that they just don't have... They know what is successful. They know what can get you a good job and give you a house and a happy life. But then the struggle comes in of bringing that other side of being a Filipino American when you, as the generations go on, is you're exposed to other things. You're exposed, you're tapped into other parts of your brain and your spirit um, that for my grandma, she wasn't able to because she just needed to survive Mm -hmm. to get here. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I don't maybe it's not expectations that are put onto us, but just um, the the level of knowledge and education of 
what we have to survive and to to thrive. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's almost it sounds like that there's uh, a kind of a shaky bridge between the generations in terms of communication because underlying it you know that there's love like they just want what's best for you Mm -hmm. right to succeed financially to be financially independent but they only have a certain kind of paradigm of how that's achievable yeah um and yeah it's hard to tell lola that you're not gonna be a nurse or a doctor it's hard to tell nanai like sorry yes (laughs) my uh social welfare degree does not pay that well (laughs) right like i'm gonna still have to live with you okay (laughs) i got rent though i got rent in the backyard (laughs) hey your your grass gonna be cut every week i'll do the dishes yeah yeah never never any dirty dishes (laughs) yeah I was just telling my grandma, I was like, I'll, I'll put up the curtains for you. You know, you do your part. <laughs> I think that also says then you, it's also even harder to tell Lola or tell your mom, I don't like myself and I'm crying every night. Mm. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the boy at school that I really liked broke my heart mm. and I feel really isolated right now. And I don't know how to even face my friends at school. Like, how do you then, if you can't even tell your family that the career I wanted is not making me happy, how can you tell them that I'm not happy? Mm. Um, so, yeah. And that's, like, and I'll just share, because, like, for example, sometimes in the past, it would have been like, just get over it, like that. Mm-hmm. Or we just, just move, you'll find another one, like that, <laughs> right? Like, but then inherently the desire there is for them to move on but then it doesn't like provide a process to kind of go through the emotions at that current um time Mm -hmm. to be able to move forward Mm -hmm. in a healthy way and yeah i think i've noticed that a lot in like some filipino um families where it is just like almost like the suck it up there is more like Oh, no, just bahala na. Just mm. let it be and just move forward like that. Mm-hmm. Have you found like a way to like bridge that generational gap at least with your family? Have you been able to like build that connection in mm-hmm. a way that is like relevant to your from where you're coming from and from your parents? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um the way I've been able to do that is that I am the bridge. I don't I couldn't even build it. I have to be the bridge. Um and that takes a lot of responsibility and commitment that no one ever expected of me that I felt like is important. Um and I do feel like is like my higher purpose in my family is to be the bridge, to be able to break chains and to make connections, to make sure that they are there. Um, in my family, my middle brother, he's having our first uh, grandchild in our family. Oh, um, Little girl. She'll be here in March. Um, and I think about her already. I think about I have to be the bridge and stay where I'm at in between our generations so that she can cross it easier. And then that she can learn how to build those better behaviors and communication patterns um, for the coming generations. <clears throat> so in that sense it's a hard commitment to keep because then it's also, I'm always the one on top of like needing to go to work, right? And paying my own bills and trying to have my own life and maintain my relationships. Then when I feel like my grandma 
doesn't like my new boyfriend and is telling me that I need to leave the house instead of reacting to that. I have to be able to be the bridge. And then my dad has to come in and talk to her about why that's not okay. And he's trying to that you know stick up for me. Mm-hmm. I have to be able to remove my ego and my needs and like hear my grandma out you know, understand the context of where she's come from and how she's been abandoned and not been able to have the tools to heal. Talk to my dad, be open with him about how I'm feeling and have to communicate between all of us. Um, and that comes through me and that comes through a lot of work and patience of not reacting and being mad at my grandma or disappointed in my dad. I have to always be the bridge. As like a bridge in a sense, you said you're third generation mm-hmm. Filipino here. So your parents were born here. I, I guess that's what I was. I classified their generation as my on both sides, my Lola and then my grandma. Um, so my, my Lola's on my mom's side. I call my grandma on my dad's side. Both came to America. So mm-hmm. the, I consider them first. And then my parents were second. And then yeah. I would be third. Yeah. That's how in my head I made yeah, sense I think that's, Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So your parents, they were born and raised here also mm-hmm. and as a third generation how did you get like in touch with your filipino side or your culture was it a strong thing in the household is it was it like a struggle to find that yeah it was a struggle to find um because um on my mom's side my lola is so we're mixed we're mestiza so she's like she always had a fair skin and so in the philippines she was i think seen um on this you know with like colonials and, yeah. yeah um <laughs> i hate to say it it's like cringes <laughs> it's true, it's right <laughs> um but because of that she has this mentality like you know white is right uh-huh. um so that's why she wanted to come to america and so she purposefully didn't teach my mom or my aunts or my uncles anything from the language because she didn't want them to have an accent she you know i love all my cousins but the ones that have white mixed in with them she praises more um gives more love to them um so that's on my mom's side and then on my dad's side my grandma was a single mom um his biological father was in the navy and then just kind of met my grandma and then left you know like tooted and booted Uh and so that left my grandma really hurt um needing to work um and so she had to leave my dad by himself a lot and so he didn't really get much culture they lived in hawaii too so that's why i get more of that hawaiian culture Mm -hmm. yeah so i didn't really have much besides maybe hawaiian culture and then from both sides if anything was filipino it was the food Mm. of course um and maybe some language and all that but there wasn't much um, and it's interesting because I live, born and raised in Stockton, which mm-hmm. is where it's Little Stock- Manila is. She's- yeah. So you weren't exposed to it growing up in Stockton? No, not me. Because um, my parents too, they were, they were in like the Filipino dance troops that are still thriving in Stockton. They grew up and that's all near South Stockton. My parents decided to move up to North Stockton, mm. um, where just basically there weren't a lot of Filipinos. And in your poem, you said two, oh, you were one of two brown families yeah. on the street? Yeah. Like that? Mm-hmm. And it's just weird how that was normal. That was just how I grew up, you know? Mm. And then I got to high school and I started realizing, without knowing it, what we would call more like the prep kids. 
I didn't relate to like the preppy kids, but really what that was, was like the white kids. And so I started having other friends and in my, like, I guess in North Stockton and just given the climate of the Bay Area at the time, a lot of black students from the Bay Area, particularly from Oakland, were starting to move out to Central Valley, similar to what's happening again now. Um, So I grew up with a lot of Latino friends and black friends, Mm. um, which is kind of like gives also context to like why I love hip hop and why that's in my work. And that started like in high school. That was in middle school. Middle school. Um, yeah, so with that, um, that's where I didn't grow up with a lot of exposure. So. And so when did you start getting into know, like learning more about your Filipino culture and all that? Yeah, um, in graduate school is when it graduate started. School? Like when I wrote that poem, that's yeah. when it's so what, 2011. So you didn't get any in college in SDSU? I mean, yeah. Mm-mm. No? Um, my unique background is that um, I identified in college and even sometimes uh, I go back and forth now. Because I grew up around a lot of Blacks and Latinos, I actually identified much more with Black culture mm-hmm. in college, mm-hmm. high school and college. So I was on the step team in high school. Oh. I was the president of the Black Student Union what? in high school. <laughs> yeah. So when I came to San Diego State, um, I remember, I remember this, you know, like in the student center, you're walking through going to class, like the Filipino organizations would like reach out to me and like, hey, you should come out to our event. And I'm like, Cool. But in my head, I'm like, I don't really relate, though. And I don't feel like I'd have much to contribute. And what I would gravitate towards, I remember, was I wanted to step again. And I went to the Black sorority tables. But then they, with their own backgrounds and context, they're like, who is this Asian chick trying to be a part of our Black sorority? So they kind of didn't pay attention to me either. So I got stuck in this limbo at San Diego State of not really knowing where I was. Mm. Um and then it wasn't until I came to grad school and moved to the Bay Area where I didn't even think I knew what I was putting myself into, uh, the, the community. Um, but that's when I started to meet people and become good friends. Um, it's crazy to me to know that like three of my closest girlfriends now are Filipino and how we have these nuanced conversations, just being able to know and relate to each other that I didn't have before. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What community did you find here once you moved to the Bay Area? What was the community that you speak about finding it and all? What mm. did that look like? And how did you get involved in it? In, in terms of just overall, just overall, what is the community? Yeah, because you just said like you didn't know um, what you were getting into moving here to the Bay. Yeah. Right. What was that uh, like jump into the, the space like? Yeah, that that is... How do I say this? The community that I didn't expect to get into was just, uh, can we curse on this? I'm going to curse. Yeah. (laughs) Just (laughs) badass Filipino educators, community organizers, um, and realizing how much of what I had been pulled to do had always been in my lineage all along Uh, and in my culture. uh. To meet people that were so passionate about art and so passionate about community work and students and youth and education. I was like, it makes complete sense now to me because it's been in my DNA all Uh, along. uh Um, 
and meeting not just one or two folks, but a whole huge network of people that do this. And this is what they're all about. Uh. Um, It made me feel like I finally had a place. Um, And it made me feel like as much as I like identify with being a person of color, as much as I identify with black culture and is I also am very proud now that I am Filipino and I I understand the history now Mm. and how important that is to know that. And that started in grad school. Grad school. It started in grad school. It started in grad school. And it hasn't become more of like an in-depth journey and education for me until like mid-20s and late-20s now. uh Like even still now. Like I'm, you know, Ruby Abara with Circa 91 coming Uh out. uh I'm like, I'm learning from her Uh about Uh my culture and what it means to be a Panay through her music. Um, So... I feel like in many ways, I've always been a late bloomer uh. um, in poetry, um, in knowing who I am as a Filipino, uh, those things. And I give myself that grace to be able to be where I'm at. Mm. That's beautiful to hear because I just moved here too in 2013. And then when I moved to Daly City and started going to community centers, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> What's going on? This is dope. And people have been doing this for decades right. out here. I'm like, is this for real? How come I didn't have this growing up? <laughs> and it's almost like a responsibility now that I feel to make sure these spaces are available to the up-and-coming youth. Mm-hmm. Like Because, damn, I would have liked to have this in high school like these opportunities to, to like learn about the culture mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. but i think that's still dope that you still get a mix of experiences where you did come from like predominantly white area and stocked in but then being able to uh, connect with black culture latinos and then also find your filipino like rootedness mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. i guess that that's why it seems like you vibe well up in Cypher. Yes, exactly. In Skyline. Yes. So Cypher just overall is a hip-hop learning community mm-hmm. um, that uses hip-hop like pedagogy to encourage success in college. Yep. Can you give me a little like of your experience? Like, What has that been like um, jumping into that Cypher community? Mm. And eventually, we can go into Rock the School Bells. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, um, well it's it started with Rock the School Bells is how yeah. I got into Cipher, but yeah, you know, then going through all these different journeys and like uh, experiences of like you know not identifying as Filipino and then identifying, but like where am I and like but uh, I still feel yeah. like I I'm a part of other cultures and like I'm so confused like what is going on and that's where. I am so incredibly in my bones passionate about hip hop because I always talk about on every panel and every class that I go to that hip hop is the culture of intersection Mm -hmm. to me, intersectionality. Um, Hip hop is a culture that is not, it doesn't belong to anyone. Mm -hmm. It belongs to everyone. Um, Wait, uh, as a quote unquote devil's advocate, mm -hmm. Doesn't hip hop belong to black people? Isn't that that's the root of it? I think the root um, is is Puerto Rican and black mm-hmm. culture. Yes, but can you say today that hip hop is black culture? Like, is it? Yes, it's appropriated, and I think it is exploited. Black culture and through hip hop is exploited in mainstream media, and we often understand it as that. But does it belong just to black people? 
and it doesn't because if you look at the history of the roots of it, it also then, as I said, belongs to Puerto Rican people mm -hmm. just as much. Mm -hmm. But then as it evolves as a culture, it belongs to Filipino culture too. Mm -hmm. it, there's a strong history of mm -hmm. Filipinos and hip hop culture mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. that have provided, especially in DJing, mm -hmm. right? And b-boying. Mm -hmm. um, there's a strong culture in Japan now. Um, so that's why I love it because yeah, it has roots of black culture and Puerto Rican culture, but what it has evolved into and will continue to, it, it, it expands like a tree. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I love about it is that you you can't be a part of this culture without knowing that you have to accept all um, and understand, be open to, to learning um, and evolving too as a person. Mm. And so how's that been um, using the hip hop culture in higher education? Because mm -hmm. that's what I would like to get into. Like, how's that experience been? Because straight up, I would had to like, uh, defend hip hop to my mama about and talk about yo they're using this in school look i got they give scholarships for higher education for students mm -hmm. and to have to be able to use something that at least for the older generation uh for some of them a lot of it is associated with the 90s like the gang banging mm -hmm. and uh, the things that the images that have been propagated on popular media mm -hmm. right on mainstream media about the negatives of hip-hop mm -hmm. so it's been a it's been like a process for me to like give little seeds to my mom see they're doing good stuff with hip-hop mm -hmm. how has it been for you using um hip-hop in uh education mm -hmm. and also have you been able to bridge the gap to older generations mm. yeah um how it has been has been it's just been such a thrill. I don't even, it's been lit. Because um, <laughs> I think for me, um, another level of when I was in graduate school, I was also so young, right? Um, so I'm being a 21-year-old, going into a graduate program where the average age was 35, um, I already felt like... I was young, like I have a different type of energy to bring. I like different types of things in music. Um, so with with using, when I found Rock the School Bells, um, it was like permission to be myself. Mm. Um, that what could be seen as youthful and unprofessional, you actually can use as a tool and a bridge to connect to students, which is at the end of the day, as counselors and educators, what we want to do. Mm. Um, and that's why I think it's now, as we go year every year moving forward, you cannot deny the concept and idea and movement of hip hop education. Because at the heart of it, if you are an educator, community organizer, and you want to connect to younger generations, this is the best way, because this mm. is what the majority, and now that hip hop is mainstream and pop, it's the best way um, off just music and content. Um, so it's it's a, been a thrill, like I say, and it's been lit because it allows me um, to be myself, to be that authentic, vulnerable, raw person, mm -hmm. artist, and counselor that I am. Um, and then with that, then I can then give the, through my example, give the permission and space to students to be able to do the same. And then our classroom becomes a cipher, basically. Mm, mm. And then what is a cipher? It's an equal exchange of energy, right? Mm. That's basically what a cipher is. So when I can be my raw, authentic self in this culture that allows 
intersectionality in all people, whatever you are, to come through, and I can be that, then that welcomes students to be able to do the same. Um, and the beauty of the collaboration and the exchange of energies, um, always like learning from each other, um, becomes an experience like I've never known. Mm. Um, I can't look at education any other way now. <laughs> even when I teach general sections, you know, and I don't teach in Cypher or Rock the School Bells, even when I've taught like outside of it, I still teach the same way mm. and it's just as impactful. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost transforming the educational space which is traditionally exclusive mm -hmm. and exclusionary to exactly. people of color mm -hmm. and very like ingrained in their power dynamics of teachers mm -hmm. you know? and this is totally this is a different approach of you saying also learning from the student yeah and letting that like back and forth flow be the main priority mm -hmm. like as a cipher and congratulations, you are now the coordinator of Rock the School Bells. Thank you. This is a big job. It's a very big, it's a big moment, yes. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, to come from being a, t a grad student, 22-year-old, and finding this organization to give me the permission to be myself, and now intru being entrusted by Nate Novato, who is the founder, creator of this. It, this is this the godfather of Rock the School Bells. This is his baby to be, you know, in its 11th year and be given it. It's, um, it's not just about him. It's not just about our advisors. It's not just about Skyline. It's mm. about, um, it's really about a community, um, and making sure that I do right to move it forward um, and giving that experience of what I got from it to others, whether it's a student or an educator or a community organizer or a friend. Um, yeah, it feels like a big responsibility that I'm, I'm honored mm. to, to be given. Yeah. What do you have in your heart, like in terms of hope for it? And what do you, mm -hmm. you envision and all that? Yeah, I think so. Rock the school bells too. We have as been a, sorry as a just context. Could you give lightweight context of Rock the School Bells oh, for yeah. people who don't know what it is? For sure, uh, Rock the School Bells is our um, one day hip hop educational conference. Happens every March in the spring semester. So RTSB eleven. Hey, it's coming March up. <laughs> hey, that's gonna be quick. That's not that I far know. from now. I know. I know. I need to go send emails after <laughs> yeah. I interview with you. Um, so Rock the School Bells, our hip one day hip hop educational conference, started as an outreach tool for Skyline College to get to middle schoolers and high schoolers to come through to Skyline using hip-hop culture elements like music dance art um, to teach students that you can do this and have this expression in the classroom and showing them the importance of why it's good to continue your education mm. once you're graduated from high school and even in while you're in school how can you relate like these needs of like expressing yourself in the classroom um, so that started out it started out with the Kabayan learning community mm. um, with Nate Devado he was the counselor and advisor for them then and they were the ones like I said, big community of Filipinos and hip hop here. The students were like, we should create a hip hop conference because we all love hip hop so much. It's so much a part of who we are here mm -hmm. in the Bay. Um, so he started it with like a group of 50 students. Now in its 11th year, we serve up to 500 to 600 students 
a year. Mm. Um, and that's just a one-day conference. Mm. Um, and then from that, um, a few years, three years ago now, four years ago now, um, Cypher was created, which is Cypher is an extension of Rock the School Bus as the learning community that then takes a cohort of now up to 50 students every year mm. um, and integrates into not just a one-day, but their day-to-day college experience, having an English class, counseling class, history class, communications class mm. of using hip-hop, what we call pedagogy, which is teaching practices. And that is honestly very important, especially that cipher, to be able to institutionalize it into schools where you get the academic credit and you get those transfer requirements completed. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that within a space that is deconstructing the traditional notions of academia mm-hmm. and uses hip hop, mm-hmm. bro. <laughs> I know, right? I've been wanting to go back to school. <laughs> Can I restart and take these classes? I know. I want to take was, it too. Yeah, I was like, whenever mm. I see it, I'll be like, oh god damn it! I took these classes already. Can I go back and like? I'm gonna have to audit that shit. And you can audit the classes. Yeah, yes. I wonder if I took these classes, if I had counselors and instructors like this, how would I be different yeah. today. Yeah. That's an interesting thought, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you wouldn't be who you are. Right. That, so right. that's that like grandfather, like calm, like you're like, what? Like uh, a conundrum, like a little mm-hmm. like weird thought um, experiment. Yes. Like what, what would it be like? Because you never know. You never know. But you wish you had it, right? Because it mm-hmm. looks super cool, mm-hmm. right? Amazing. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. like our students, I love them all. But sometimes when they're late to class or they're not taking seriously, sometimes, and I don't knock them for it because they don't know. They yeah. don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And so it's like, I, sometimes I sit in class, I'm like, do y'all understand <laughs> what you are? You're getting the first institutionalized West Coast hip hop learning community like do you not understand uh-huh. what that means? And I think uh-huh. they do at the heart of it. Yeah. But, yeah. you know. It's the hip hop. You gotta, you gotta yeah. rock it, right? That's yes. why. <laughs> yes. And Rock the School Bells is not just in Skyline now. Correct. Right? Yes. It's in multi- I saw they did it one in Hawaii now. Yes. So um, after we, I guess we still call ourselves Rock the School Bells as the main, but it'd be like, I guess, Bay Area. Then after Bay Area um, extended out to Rock the School Bells Sacramento mm. um, and with the, uh, their crew, which is the Let's See crew, they, they've held theirs down. I think they just had their sixth year mm. in Sacramento. And then after Sacramento came De Anza. Mm. So Rock the School Bells De Anza on San Jose, they are on their second year. Their actual Rock the School Bells is happening November 30th, mm. um, so in a few weeks. And then after De Anza came Hawaii, um, and theirs happened just this last few weeks ago. Um, and then they are extending and expanding also to the main island. So they'll have two different Rock the School Bells in Hawaii as well. So we're we're out here. It's spreading. Mm-hmm. It's like, and it's a very important work to spread it. Yeah. too where it's not just like kept here right um i remember talking to someone about the lessons that we learn we also have a responsibility to spread that mm. and to share those so that it's not just keeping that wealth to ourselves right or to this specific locality and all. yep and it's beautiful to see i'm very excited but i don't think you touched on we were just doing the context of it yeah. what do you feel in your heart now moving forward as a coordinator yeah and it actually relates to what you were just saying is you know spreading the 
the knowledge, the the tools. So, and that's why I've been given the honor of being the new coordinator for the Bay Area Rock the School Bells because, um, so Nate's a very close mentor of mine and he also has decided with our team um, of advisors and our, our family, as we call it, is that they we are looking to spread it, right? It's, it's starting to be given national attention. So we want to be also, if we are the ones that, are the the model for it we need to be able to go out to other schools and help them to know the ins and outs of mm-hmm. how to run this and making sure for you know quality and consistency mm-hmm. um that we're all on the same page so that's where um nate has now he's in his doctorate program um along with some of our other colleagues yeah, from skyline i know shout out to the ssa yeah, doctorate program yeah. um so he's doing that as well as um one of our other advisors mandy lau um she's getting her master's in counseling but also wanting to work with him to be a consultant for Act school bell so as they do their work to be able to go out and spread this to other campuses what happens then to the bay area mm-hmm. it still needs to be able to run and we still feel Feel that um, that responsibility of being the staple of how Rock the School Bells um, is functioning mm-hmm. um, and innovating. So let's go back on that. What is my at my heart for wanting for Rock the School Bells now moving forward as the new coordinator? It's you know um, it was hard for me the process talking about my raw honest part. It was hard for me to step up into this role mm. because again like why me you know. Like, am I going to be good enough? All those things that we always often think about, whether it's in school or our careers or relationships. And when I connect it to a bigger purpose of not, this is like, and this is really comes back to actually our culture is that I understand that I am a bigger piece or I am a small piece of a bigger work Mm. um, that I need to step up so that our other leaders can be able to spread this out. Mm. Um, and with that, then I find a purpose of this is bigger than me. And I need to get rid of my own fears and, and thoughts of that and allow myself to step up for the bigger community. Mm. So my hope is that um, we spread to different colleges um, as the years go and that at the Bay Area that we still continue to innovate Um Another part of it, which comes into RTSB 11, is that I'm very excited to be a female lead coordinator as well and a Panay female lead educator and coordinator because, at least within hip-hop in the Bay Area, there is, and I think overall in hip-hop culture, you know, with uh, females being um, degraded, um, they are seen in a specific way, Um, I'm... And especially, and then in the community organizing organization of hip hop, females are always on the back end. So to be able then on that other level of being at the forefront, um, I'm excited to be a role model for mm. for for others. Um, that was my biggest passion coming into education, and even in my poetry was always to be a role model specifically for females. Mm. Um, so in that, in my heart of hearts, I'm excited to be able to be a female leader. Um, and showing that um, we can be just as effective, um, just as innovative and creative alongside our male colleagues. Um, so I'm excited for that. Dope. Yeah. It, it reminds me of um, the book. What you're, you just saying about being a role model reminds me of Lenny Strabell's um, process of decolonization. Mm-hmm. And then she's talking in one of the aspects of 
the necessity for us to see people in power positions that look like us, um, role models in that sense, but also for for example like teachers counselors that look like us that are filipino but also having the responsibility then to put ourselves into those positions so that those coming up the youngins have somebody that looks up to us Mm -hmm. that can relate and yo that is true about you're in a very kind of um I would say not touchy, but it's very multifaceted being a woman in hip hop and in education and, and Filipino and Filipino woman. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you feel? Let's jump a little bit to hip hop. Yeah. This is a hip hop. Let's All right. Oh, what do you think of Bodak Yellow? <laughs> oh, I love Bodak Yellow. Oh, okay, I love Cardi B. Where do you stand on? Here, I just want to get your input, all right? Because mm-hmm. I was having this conversation this one time, right? Uh-huh. About, like, uh, for example, they did not want me to use, like, say, bitch, right? Mm. The word that, because it's uh, the way it's used is degrading, mm-hmm. right? But they may be rocking to, like, a song that has bitch in it. Like, ah, and then when we have a discussion, but wait, you told me you don't like using that word. But how come you rock with it in the song? Uh-huh. And then, but it's just the rationality is it's just the beat, it's the song, it's right. different from our everyday life of using that or um, that it's it's different because it's art in that sense. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand with like music that um, is borderline in that sense? Like, uh, how would you say offensive? Like that. Mm-hmm. Degrading, oppressive. Degrading, yeah. All those things. There's no answer. There's no easy answer to that, I would say. Um, because, And that's why another reason I love hip-hop, because it is so complicated hmm. and complex. Hmm. It is a reflection of us as human beings. It's a reflection of us as people of color. Hmm. That um, have you, Do you know Chris Rock? Do you know his stand-up? Yeah. He's, yeah. He explains it really well. Like, I could, as a female, I could say, like, be in the club rocking out to like cardi b or rocking out what was it the song he uses oh uh to the windows to the walls yeah yeah and it's like i could be a female rocking out to that and they're like wait but don't you like that and it's like well he's not talking about me so (laughs) so it's almost like that thing like i can't deny that i love music that has degrading lyrics in it Mm. but the thing that i'm always big on then is for me and that i speak with with our students and what i'm about with hip-hop education is if you're going to ingest this material, I want you to at least be critical and understanding of what the messages are and what the impacts and consequences can be for this. Because um, I don't think it's also fair to come in and be like, you can't do that. Mm. You can't listen to that. You can't say that. Because that's not hip hop. Yeah. But at least what I want you to do is tell me why you are okay with saying that word. And how do you justify, do you understand what the history of that word can mean to oh, one of your, to your sister? Mm. And as long as you can understand that and you're still okay with it, then I have no place to judge you. Um, but it's when students take in this music and don't know what is being told to them is where I have a problem with it. Mm. And that's where I have the passion for hip-hop education. So it's more on having an active consumption Mm-hmm. perspective of knowing what you're consuming and being able to speak on it right and knowing the implications of it mm-hmm. rather than just saying no bad words right. no like stop all the music because that's all like degrading this and that yeah because it's not that's not hip-hop right right just like for for black culture a big thing is the n-word right like 
some are okay with using it, some are not. Um, but you can't say, like, if, who has the permission to say it or not, um, especially when you, you hear of the context of why black folks like to use that word. They use it as an empowerment. Mm-hmm. Cardi B uses the word bitch as a way to empower her. She's a bad bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can I judge her when that's something that she's using as something to empower her and liberate her? Um, yeah. And then it's so multifaceted because it just reminds me of that Lupe Fiasco song about, uh, uh, what was it, bitch bad, woman good, lady uh-huh. better. And then he's like trying to deconstruct the usage of uh, bad bitch mm-hmm. and like how, like what are the implications then of, are you looking to be that? Are you trying, uh, and now does a man like growing up with his mama saying that she a bad bitch, like feel that. Or develop a sense of attractiveness to mm-hmm. that type of woman, but what does that implicate? Uh, implication mm-hmm. when you also use that word in anger mm-hmm. and all that is very like, like a uh, kind of like this kind of weird object that they are looking yeah. at from ten different yeah, sides. Yeah, just like all these moving places and opinions. And that, to me, my my thought on that would be, why do we often? Again, like we place so much weight on words when it's not necessarily about the words, but it's about how you want to live your life, mm. you know? Um, like, yeah, you can say that word, but what in the context of like, I call myself a bad bitch, but that doesn't mean like, but I also know like I have my own boundaries, I have my own values, mm. like I am independent, and that's a word that helps me to validate the values that I have in my life. Mm. Um, so it's not just about this weight of a word, it's the context, it's the history of it, it's the way I live my life. Um, yeah, and that's where, you know, I think with, with hip-hop, it's these kind of debates often are like again it makes me think like this is why this is this is colonization this is oppression this is what they want us to do they want us to have what is oops, i'm sorry what is right and what is wrong um what is good what is not in hip-hop when i thought that's like was the whole point is that you can't ever have like a one label thing we don't belong in categories yeah. because if you categorize us if we allow us to categorize each other we we lose again um so do you think then like is that applicable to categorizing like that mumble rap like (laughs) is that then like that outside perspective colonization or oppression in that sense of being of saying hey this is not rap because this is mumble rap right this is is a different thing it's not lyrical it's not woke yeah i think i think that's the breaking the generations and that's another type of issue is like Mm. we we are hip-hop we're from the golden era of the 80s this is hip-hop like yes and it is and that was it for you again hip-hop is always evolving hip-hop is about the youth then and the generation and if the generation now likes mumble rap that's hip-hop right now. Mm. And instead of putting our notions and expectations onto youth, we have to be able to come to where they're at. And that's why I love Cypher. I'm always learning about new music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know who Lil Gotti is, <laughs> you know? All these, like, what? I don't even, can you tell you? But I have to be willing to learn. Um, and so if my students are saying they love hip-hop mumble rap, then I'm going to be willing to be open to it. Uh. And I can still not like it. But I'm not going to tell them that it's not hip-hop. Uh, I can't tell them who they are. 
But you'll be open to learning about it, learning yeah. from it. Mm-hmm. Yo, the youth are on it though. When I was at Denman Middle School, this kid, first week of school, comes in. He's like, hey, hey, can I show you? Can I show you something? I'm like, what? what? Can I bring him on my phone? He shows me, have you heard of Lil Uzi Vert? <laughs> and then they just caught him that he was running away, right? And this was before Lil Uzi Vert like popped off, mm-hmm. before he got super popular. And I was like, I don't know who this this is. I bet this is some whack rap. I'm like, what are you playing? Mm-hmm. And then, little did I know, a few months later, he's hitting the chart and everything. Yeah. I'm like, dang, this kid was on it. Right. They have they have that connection yeah. that I don't have anymore. Sometimes I need to find the new. Oh, so what's the, what's the new music? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I'm like, he's trying to use Discover Weekly or Spotify. <laughs> what's the new shit? I don't have time to search anymore. New World Star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what's uh, what's popping? Yeah. Yeah, they they are, if, and that's the foundation of education, community organization, and hip hop. Youth are our key to mm. the generations, mm. and so they know what's up. We have to respect it. Um, yeah, so that's another thing that that's always hard is that it makes me think about coming in as the Rock the School Bells coordinator is. I will be, I'm a younger generation, like I'm the new one coming up. So things might look different, might sound Mm. different. The headliners we get might sound different. Mm. Um, But there is that respect within our legacy and our lineage of Rock the School Bells, advisors and family that like, that's what we look for. We welcome the change. Is it interesting to be part of a legacy? Mm. Like, because... I was just on this tip the other week of like looking at old ass legacies like because I just looked at frats and then looking at secret societies and all these things that have been instituted um, and some level of organizing for decades. Yeah. Right. And this is something that we see being built like 11 years. That's strong. But there is now that base of a legacy of a purpose of mm-hmm. a mission and being able to be part of that is interesting at least from the perspective of someone looking into it what mm-hmm. do you how do you feel about that overwhelmed <laughs> <laughs> excited though and you know when you say it like that i think that is why it is so important and legacy has become this like big like buzz idea at least for for me within hip hop ed work and education because you need to have that sense, just like in our culture, when you have a sense of obligation to elders and to the youth, you then can be grounded in your purpose. Like, you know, and it's an honor to think like, man, I am a part of an organization. I didn't think about that really. Like that will be happening years from now, mm-hmm. long after hopefully that I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and how exciting that is, especially when, we can use more legacies and institutionalization of organizations for people of color. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely, it feels humbling. It feels warm when I think of it um, to, to be a part of it. Yeah. And I think it's important. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important, especially when you think of building institutions based out of the experiences of people of color mm-hmm. too, because it's, it's very different. Because sometimes I walk down like, frat row and then i see like these frats that have been there like 18 something and then it was pointed out oh those were around when slavery was still around i was like yeah damn (laughs) like and the 
the principles, right, of the people who created that, it was created in a time when those thought patterns of slavery was acceptable. Mm-hmm. Right? So it makes you think, okay, what now are the trickle-down feelings or patterns of behavior of people who have been institutionalized within mm. this organization, within mm-hmm. this institution? Mm. It makes me just think of academia, right? Of who are the ones who set up academia? The people who set up the educational system in the Philippines believed in scientific racism, right? Of us being, oh, they're just dirty because they're brown. Like, and it was in academic papers. Mm-hmm. So how does that trickle down into how we experience just our lives our and lives. education too? So I really feel that's why it's important to have these alternative forms of institutional creations mm-hmm. that speak to the experiences and are driven by people of color by women of color who are not given the those spaces to be what they are what they can be mm-hmm. like traditionally yeah and yeah you preaching yeah, right so now. i'm excited bro i'm gonna be there every rtsb it's dope it's dope to be in those spaces though yeah. like i'll just speak on as a uh, attendee just to be able to see the vibe of youth and a college and then also the facilitators who come in to contribute and to really speak mm-hmm. on their experiences whether it is analyzing music whether it's the business side of music whether mm-hmm. it's just using djing and all that it is spaces alternative spaces that have not been available mm-hmm. right for people to just be yes and exist and like thrive especially within academia mm-hmm. so it, th- that day it's one of my favorite days in the year yeah besides like christmas right? yeah <laughs> uh-huh. because it it allows for us to come together and really have a space like we would do so much work throughout the year day in day out right deal with a lot of trauma and vicarious trauma through our students mm. and a lot of hurt and a lot of work, good work that this is like a one day that we can come together and realize and validate each other of why we are continuing to do this work mm. um, and that's goes to um, going back to your question of what's in my heart of hearts for Rock the School Bells we have an educators conference piece and one of my big goals is to really beef that up and make that a bigger space because like me, I was a late bloomer. So I might not have been the youth that got to go to something like this, but that doesn't mean that there aren't educators, community organizations, and people that want to learn more, business owners that want to be a part of this more and and learn about themselves through it. Um, So that's what I'm trying to also provide with Rock to School Bells and the Mm. next legacy, I guess. March! March, right? (laughs) March 10th. March 10th. March 10th. 10th. Yes. So, would you do me a favor and bless us with another poetry piece? Because I actually have some questions about poetry now sure. that we're transitioning into. Let's we've see. talked about like the logistical side of uh, education. Could you actually put your computer here too, yeah. so that the you can look okay, here in the camera? Let's see. Cool. Hmm. And to talk, to share. I remember. I think the one of the very first times that I saw you. Yeah was at cocktails at SFSU. Oh. You killed that shit. I was like, what? Dang. Who is this? And could you give a little background of cocktails? Oh, gosh, I miss cocktails. Let's bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back, uh, yo. 
Yeah, so Ishmael de Guzman, shout out to him, miss him. Um, a counselor, what then at SF State created um, a production that was in response to the vagina monologues. Um, so, Vagina Monologues um, by Eve Ensler has been an institutionalized historic production, happens globally, um, that I got to be a part of while being in uh, graduate school as, at SF State. And then Ishmael created one that was in response, um, a little different though where he provides a space for men um, of all types to be able to create their own narratives and then perform that. And that doesn't have to necessarily be in monologue or writing. It could be in dance form, comedic form, by music. Um, and that's where the name comes from, Cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as he does this production, he it's really a process, like a counseling process too, with these... Um, I guess, these performers um, to create these pieces and really meet with them throughout the year and like explore what their identity of being males is about. Mm. Um, so a lot of my work, we talk a lot about the hip hop piece and the Filipino piece and ethnic identity. And then we talked a little bit about like the feminism piece um, and what has come for me in, cause that's like my, where my poetry started too was about like female empowerment, feminism. Um, and then it, it evolved into through cocktails, realizing that, you know, to be believe in feminism, to believe in the rights of women and voice of women, I have to also nurture and invest equally, if not more, into the voices of young men um, and men. Um, and so that's where Cocktails came about. Um, so to be able to be asked to be a part of Cocktails, to show that, um, I think you came when I did Skipping Rocks on Water. Did I have short hair then? I think so. And yeah. then you were like, um, I remember, please let me yes. be there for you. Yes. And the message and all. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt very honored to be um, a female, cis, heteronormative female um, in the, all the tra traditional typical senses and being a part of cocktails was a very powerful experience um, to be able to give that message of we need a intersection, we need to work together, um, be able to all be a part of these issues and all of this, all of these movements together to be able to make them effective. Yeah. So that was cocktails. Do you have that piece? Awesome. I do. You want to do that one? <laughs> hey, you can do that. You can do two. Uh, ooh, let me get all these pieces, son. I know. Like, it's Don't like, live and do it all. Do your chat book right here. Oh, my gosh. Give me rocks. Let's see if I can find it. You uh, are doing a publication, right? I guess so. I guess so. Okay, let's see. Yeah, I'm waiting for that to be revived. I know you're busy, but could I put a request in? For cocktails? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, oh, here it is. Okay. I can do Skipping Rocks on Water. Dope. Cool. All right. Please, please. 2014. Bless. Oh, my goodness. 2014. Okay. <clears throat> as woman, as feminist, as ally, as advocate... As victim, as victor, as shadow, as beacon, as Kim, I see it fit to extend my olive branch, to build a bridge across these waters, to make a necessary amendment to these modern day myths, mirages to men to only mirror what has been masked as masculinity to them, to find ways to break this code, to break the cycle, to break this mold, molding away our young men, our baby boys, our older men, 
again and again and again, and this will be a struggle. Come, join me. This will be a process, so let us begin. Brothers, come close and fill your cup. There is healing here, I assure you, my water is clean. Let us fill you up to brim. You are the only one damned here if you keep blocking out the flood the way you do. You have been fooled and convinced in your own concrete walls of violence and aggression, of ego and suppressed sadness that you cannot even see the fault lines in which your water is leaking through have you not noticed yet. You are existing half empty. Can you not see yet? You are leaking and losing due to a lack of loving. There is need for mending all around. Have you not learned yet? Healing looks a lot like suffering and often gets mistaken for weakness. There is no weakness in the mighty heart of a man resting with his chest open and, and accepting to be hit. Instead, you hit first and bow down last. Brothers, remember there is love in letting go of the flood. Remember, your love is all you have because there are choppy waters to survive. You must swim good and you must tread well. Though this water is clean, this water be not still, and I know you know this all too well. You know that the strong never evolve from easy. Your life was not easy. Hell, your life still is not easy. I've seen it. I've drowned in these exact waters trying to hold on to and rescue three boys just like you. I asked the first why he kept misery so close. I asked the second why he felt the need to lie. I tried to ask the third to be fearless and loving me before he ran away with his fear and pride. You see, seldom evolve and few survive, but not held against them, you see, because history can repeat. I know it's not easy. Um, I know in... I know in how I have watched my back in dark alleys and empty parking lots. I know it's not easy when I have to hide, stay quiet, to miss being caught by shadows, miss being caught by thieves, thieves that have intruded our bodies and keep ripping up our homes, taking every trinket and valued momentum as if our property were arrogantly theirs to claim, marking territory across the plains of our godly places, across our faces. Sucking dry our rivers and emptying out our souls, we women are thirsty too. But the last thing I want is for guilt to suffocate you. These actions were not your doing. These actions are not your doing. But brothers, remember that your lack of action can damage, bruise just as bloody and blue simply by not doing a damn thing too. Our stories do not seek your apologies or empathy. Don't apologize. Don't feel guilty. Just do. And sure, feminism looks like this, but my feminism is not a synonym for hating you. Your history is not your excuse for hating you. I thank you. I honor you. And I love you. Be vulnerable and strong in accepting this love, please. We women cannot do this alone. I need you to cry with me. She is asking you to listen to her. Hold her until she feels safe again. Take her hand and be kind. Be intentional with your words. You hold so much power in your hands, often focusing it on glass houses that, th that you throw your rocks at so recklessly. This world is not a steady lake for you to skip across. Put the stones down carefully. Have you not seen the damage they've already caused? And brothers, remember, your heart is your home. 
And home is the source of that life-cleansing water that can quench your thirst and fill you up to brim. So let us begin. It is not the need to break the code, but to mend your broken hearts and histories, your wounded stories and bones, and in this home, I hope that you know that there will always be safe grounds here for you and for me, and side by side in unity, therein thrives the greatest life-givers of all. There is love, there is healing here, and there is always, there is always hope. Snaps on snaps. I always get emotional at one of the points. I almost cried again. Really? Yeah. I always say in what my point? poems, you you have a poem when you have that one line mm-hmm. that speaks to you. Um, the, the line that always gets to me is when I say, I need you to cry with me. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It even gets me emotional thinking about it. <laughs> That's the power of poetry. Mm-hmm. And it almost it like brings you back to those emotions, especially when it's written at such a real point mm-hmm. because it almost snapshots it and puts you right there but that's the power of poetry that it in my opinion brings also the people listening along with you on that ride to like show that yo this is a human experience yeah you know and i think that's why i was when i you know like you're like what you've never like did poetry before this because there are people that like you know they're raised in these organizations and nonprofits, like to learn how to write and do spoken word mm-hmm. but me i was just like this renegade out of nowhere like just started doing this and and started like really getting onto the scene of spoken word and slamming and like winning um i remember I, like I, at sf state i was the first grand slam champ for our first national team um and i went against uh, people that have been in brave new voices before and i always like i used to trip about like what is it what what is what is it about my my poetry but i think it comes back to that heart of i think i'm just really raw and honest um in my experiences and when i write these pieces they're really about me Mm. um and when i can be okay and brave enough to put that out there on stage that's how people like really feel this stuff is because they feel it with me Mm. um yeah when you write um what's the impetus to writing is it usually like an emotion that you're at like how do you get onto the paper and the or the, mm. the page yeah like, do you have a set time that you write do you write when you are inspired to for some emotion what does that look like what's the process of writing look like for you um i've tried the different ways i think my best pieces have come from intuition and like inspiration on the moment mm. Um, uh, it was once said, um, by, um, what's her name? She's this white woman, Elizabeth Gilbert. She's dope. Eat, pray, love. You know, everyone has their comments about that, that book, but, um, she made, she said it in such a good way as a writer that she sees it like almost like a storm, um, that she can see, you know, you can see a storm. I see it almost in my poetic part coming out. Like I'm on this, like this grassy field, right. And I could see the ocean almost like being over here, um, like in Pacifica or, and like, you could see the storm about to roll through, you feel it. Um, but you can't force it to come. Um, I always feel like I know when a a good poem is going to come. And sometimes that storm does come and it comes through full effects, right? And and it starts with a few lines. Um, And that's where I kind of talk to myself. And I'm like, I like always I'm thinking in in poetry. And then I'll put a line down and then that's where it just spills out. Um, Other times I feel the storm coming 
and I'm letting it come and then it fizzles away or it goes into a different direction. And I have to be okay in those moments too. Um, and like lately I have not written in a while. Um, and, you know, instead of like, I could go through and like think, why am I not writing and be hard on myself? But I just have to let it happen when it yeah. happens. Um, yeah. So like all my good pieces were written in like an hour or two yeah. hours. And it's like riding that wave of inspiration or that storm, like riding through the emotions that come through it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Could you give me a little bit of this context behind this piece? Like, what were your emotions? What were what's the message? And like, in the sense of what do you mean by um, this call to action for men to like be open that you're there for them too? What do you see is lacking in terms of the behaviors of men or the standard mm. model of behavior and or expectations for them to act that they feel like they have a wad off? to their flood in this mm, case. Yeah. What's the... I think yeah, I, my answer to that is twofold. One is I had a friend in college. Uh, I remember when I started, started writing, um, you know, getting into these, like, becoming aware of, like, feminism and, like, women's rights. And, like, I would talk to my friend about it. And he was like, that's cool. And I'm like, you don't, like, care about this stuff? And he <laughs> was like, well, that's cool, but it's just not my problem. Mm. And I was like... Oh, and I think that is that that's male privilege right there, right? Is that, yeah, like I support you in like believing in all these things and fighting that good fight, like, and I'll support you from right here because that's not, I don't have to deal with that. You know, it's, it's kind of like the basis of Black Lives Matter, uh -huh. like us all taking action into something. Um, but in this particular, yeah, I guess my call to action here is that for men, like, it's one thing to say you support, like, equal rights it's in feminism and that like yeah well yeah yes you should be a bad bitch and do your <laughs> thing um but it's another to to be on the front lines with um a woman it's another to when a guy calls her out um and says something offensive to her in a club like she yes she should be able to hold her own but also saying like you also are not just sitting there passively and being okay with it that mm. you too have the ability to say that's not cool um Things like but that. But the the in addition to that, I feel there's like this message almost of call to action to cry with you. Yes. To like to yes. break through, break open in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And that is the part where, you know, um, and that's where I feel for men, um, and in particular, men and men of color in particular, because men of color are brought up into this world. Um to be hard you know to to hold it together not cry not have emotions um and that comes out and be, be aggressive be violent um and be dominant and so you know there there's work to be done also before you can have a call to action to be on the front lines with women or really talk the talk and walk the walk you have to do back to our first conversation. You have to love yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and like if I, a call to action for like a male counterpart and I want him to be able to believe in these rights and these movements with me, first thing I would want him to do then is to sit with himself and heal himself mm. first. Mm. 
Like, do that before you can come out on the front lines in the streets with us. You know, do that before you can put yourself in a, in a classroom. Um, do your work, too, um, in that sense. Just like, I think a lot of times women are forced. We are forced to have to do our work. Because that's just how we are socialized to be emotional, to be, to be the wound, to put ourselves on the lines, uh, our hearts out there, our bodies out there, um, open like that. And that comes with its dangers. But for men, it's about, like I said, in it, there's a power in having a man rest open with his chest open rather than pushing and striking at me. Um, so, yeah, sometimes to do the work and that call to action is to to do your own healing. Mm. Um, and that's a scary thing for a lot of men, I understand. Um, when I work with students, my male students, that's a lot of times where we have to focus on um, is what's happened in your life? Where are you hurting? Mm. Um, even asking that question, that's that could take a whole year for them to answer. Oh, no, fine. We're talking. Yeah, right. No, it's that's cool. It's big deal. It's chill, bro. Mm-hmm. There's nothing bad. Mm-hmm. And then deep- <laughs> I've, I've had student, male students that... They were on their way to transfer. They were on their way to graduate, and then all of a sudden didn't because over the summer they went through a bad breakup and didn't have any support. So then they put themselves in a cave mm. and drank away their problems, mm. smoked away their problems, got into fights. Like the, it's real. It happens. Like, yeah. How is that as a counselor seeing that sometimes? Like mm. I was just also going to ask, like in terms of transference, in terms of like be hearing all the uh, issues going on um, and having to give that counseling advice, right? How do you also kind of not let it affect you in a sense on a personal tip if there is that? Because the emotional labor to work through people's issues can be very heavy Mm -hmm. on an individual who is working in that counselor position. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? But also, like, how has it been if you... For you, when you have those times where you're saying you have, you see a student who's gone through everything, is about to transfer, and just doesn't. Mm. What is that like? It's hard um, to feel that with them, right? I care about them. I love them as students. So when I hear that they've gone through something and then they didn't get to achieve their goal, like they in the timeline they wanted to. But I have a, I guess it's my kind of that idea, that deep faith, that the bigger picture of thing that of things that it didn't happen for them right now, but that we're going to keep persevering. Mm. Like I said, move through, hold that fear and that pain and keep moving through. Um, I guess what helps me to stay sane is that the, the grounding of faith and hope um, and that, you know, we in the history of our our various cultures and identities have always been okay. We'll be okay. We'll be going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even say with that student, it was like, yeah, that's a bummer. And I, I feel for that he hurt, but that now let's talk about how you can heal. Um, and okay, you're here for another year. How can we optimize this opportunity for you to learn more and take the time before you actually then transfer maybe a year later. Mm. Um, so, I'm always big on that, you know, like, and that's kind of that idea of just letting things go and not having labels and categories and timelines, you know, pressures and expectations is when students come and they're like, I'm failing or I'm hurting. It's like, then, then go ahead and do that. Mm. And there's, 
you don't have to transfer then this this year. Mm. Um, and sometimes students need that somebody to give them that permission outside of themselves and hear that that it's going to be fine and that you don't have to do things in a certain way. Mm. That you can hurt. It's okay. You're imperfect. That's fine. That's beautiful. And we're going to keep moving forward. Mm. It's not for that. Mm. In your keynote speech uh, to the fellow counselors, you were talking about how at the root of it all is love, right? And mm -hmm. you go through love for community, love for self. I want to ask, how do you maintain that perspective on a consistent basis through practice also? Because like, it's kind of easy to know the principle, but to do it on a consistent daily basis to live things out <laughs> it's not that simple all the time mm -mm. right like even just uh shout out to maiden pinas with their cap i am kapwa because mm -hmm. i love kapwa the mentality of it but sometimes i just have to remind myself okay kapwa like what does it mean to really embody the principle of uh seeing the shared identity between all of us right because sometimes we get caught up in the in us. Shit, in us, right? Uh -huh. But how about that? How about with love? How do you how what how do you maintain that consistency about actually embodying practicing love when a lot of times we aren't encouraged to do that, especially in our society, in media. It's not something that's pushed to like practice love. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. How do you do that as like an individual but also on the professional level? There's like that almost pressure to be able to deliver and perform these services as a counselor mm -hmm. and say like and push students through yes like and and not be present with them how do i maintain it i don't know i guess it's hard work it's hard work just like you know you think of and i in that speech i i think it's the best way to to give an analogy for people to relate to it's like a relationship it's like, it's like having a child. You make a commitment, um, and every day you wake up, um, making love a choice and a commitment. And I think that is really it. Is we are, I believe that we are inherently loving and good, but you also still have to make that choice to practice it. Um, so there are days that it's not easy for me. There are days I want to be like fuck this and mm. fuck you and I can't do this or like whatever I'm not good right now um and maybe and I'll be honest I allow myself those internal reactions but then how I then pause and choose to show myself and show up for people and show up for students and show up in my personal life um has to be loving it's just for me it's and maybe that's just my intensity is like I'm committed to that it always has to be that, um, which in a way actually makes it easier for me. That a long time ago, I made a commitment that I will always respond with love. Um, I was, will always respond with trying to understand where you're coming from. Um, and if that takes a toll and sacrifice of my own self and my own ego or my like sleep for a night, then so be it. Because I understand I have that faith and hope in a bigger picture that there is no benefit for me to react at you and blame you or make this about me. Because um, I've made a commitment to community. I've made a commitment to my legacy and I've made a commitment to love. Mm. Um, and it's just choices that we make every morning we get up. 
Sounds like you're very rooted within that principle. At mm. least that gives you like that long-term energy in the little lows. That, so true. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to ask, as like based on this uh, poem that we just um, heard, right, uh, from a female perspective, and then you're you're talking about um, getting interested in like feminism when you're in college, mm-hmm. right? And then now a while ago you're in. Uh, I'm very grateful for your opportunity to be in a coordinator leadership position mm-hmm. as a Pinay, as a Filipino. Could you give me a little just general thoughts on how has it been finding your place as a Pinay specifically, uh, as a Filipina American in this community? What has the experience been like for you and what has been the struggles and where have you found your peace? Hmm. Because huh. I also read... Um, your complicated pussy uh, um, <laughs> article. Yes, right? man, uh, you did your talking, research. Yes, um, <laughs> talking about how there are certain expectations on a Filipina and um, about having kids, about um, deciding between even your career, mm-hmm. right, or having a family. These mm. expectations that are very, admittedly, genderized. Um, historically mm-hmm. especially within the filipino community mm-hmm. so where have you found what have been the major struggles in that right overall but where have you found your strength because sometimes it's hard to push back against a big culture yeah right especially if that culture is within your family too mm-hmm. right sometimes it's just easier to just okay <laughs> right mm-hmm. where have you found that strength mm. So in the context, uh, in, the, in that article, I talk about my Lola mm-hmm. and giving the pressures that I should have been married already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's again where I, I am a bridge to the other generations. Um, as a Panay, I have to be a bridge, right? So I hear my grandma out. I hear my, so it comes like, I talk about the two different perspectives. Yeah. One Lola is saying you should have been married by now. The other one with her traumas and experiences are saying, don't ever get married. Really? Yeah. Oh. One saying you should have been married. You need to rely on the man. The other saying don't trust men. Oh. Um, and again, like grounding in love, grounding in this is not about me. At the end of the day, this is about what they have gone through. Um, and so the struggles are, the struggle is that every day, it's the everyday little minutia conversations and struggles of having to, to hear my grandma, but then ask her, you know, what happened in your story? What happened as you immigrated from the Philippines to Hawaii to San Francisco? Saying to my Lola, I understand that Lola, but what if it was this as well? Being able to have the patience and commitment to have those conversations with them. That's the the struggle of it. Um, I'm blessed to have parents, though, that for whatever reasons have always just felt like they just wanted us to get an education, get a good job and be good people. Um, So I know I have that context of I don't have a direct expectation and pressure from my parents um, to be married to all that. It actually comes from the older generation of the different expectations. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's my struggle um, is to constantly still be the bridge. And then the other struggle is, is, I guess, as a Filipina and a woman of color is like what I talk about in that 
that piece is as you become more aware of yourself, as you become stronger in your voice, and then as you become independent in your career, it also puts you at risk in our general overall, not even just Filipino culture and society, but just overall society of will you be able to have love for yourself? Like really in, in a romantic sense, will you be able to have build a family and have all of that too? Um, because your expectations have been to be a certain way in a, in a marriage. Um, and when I wrote that, that was at that time of like, what do you, what do you sacrifice? I feel like we are, as Panais, we have to often question, what do we have to sacrifice? Do we sacrifice the work of the community then to be able to have a family? Because um, if I have a family, I have to be there for my kids. And then I'm not here at the events and I'm not there coordinating. Mm. But I love it just as equally. And so I guess, yeah, that's really what the struggle is, is feeling the idea that you have to make a sacrifice. And I had come out up like being younger with this idealism of I can have everything. And even so, my real struggle is, can I? Can I do everything all at once? Or will I have to make sacrifices throughout my life of what it means more at the time? Um, and that's a hard thing, I think, for Panais and Filipinas to to embrace is that we hold villages and we hold families, and and but then the sacrifice has come historically that we can't hold ourselves. Mm. So, what times in your life, at what seasons, will you have to sacrifice one or the other? Mm. And that's at least that's my truth and my story. It sounds like. I just wanted to get that perspective because sometimes it's even hard for me to put myself into the role of I can't I don't know it's like to be able I'm like you know I, just, I don't know just, and vice versa yeah there's, there's something different it's like so uh, but I do think it's important to have those voices at the forefront so that the youngins and others can have that perspective mm. right so we can have bridges between the those who are our age and younger, but also between the genders, between yeah. like this conversation, because it like you know that Me Too campaign, that shit hit me a lot. Like I was like, what the fuck? Mm. And I was just talking to my other cousin, and he was like, dude, I didn't know like some of the shit happens like to people that you would not have thought. Mm -hmm. Like, and I remember the very first time I would hear like stories that what you were followed just out of the hotel. Just like walking down the street, I was like, I've never been followed. Like, mm -hmm. just realizing that flip sometimes yeah. of experience yeah. that is totally different. You're in a different world. It's like a different matrix. Yes. You're, like you're plugged into a different experience. But you're in the same place, but seeing different realities. Yeah. Yeah. Just like for you, I'm sure, or for especially Filipino men, that you probably got gotten questioned by authority in certain ways at some point mm -hmm. or stopped, you know, um, or told you can't do this. You're not capable of that. You know, there's other things that I don't experience that you do. Um, and like, just as you're saying that, it's like, damn, this, this whole conversation, all the ones that you've had with other guests are just even examples for younger generations to listen to, for to have a male Filipino and a female Filipino having a conversation like mm -hmm. this even is really significant. Mm -hmm. um, 
so thank you for the space as thank well. you for coming this this is what the space is <laughs> shit. if it's just me talking to the mic it's a different thing <laughs> oh, no, no. Shit, but there are old episodes where it's just me talking to the see. mic so don't listen to that don't <laughs> unless you just want to make fun of me <laughs> <laughs> but it's true like i really feel there are like especially now where we're all here on the phone mm-hmm. like there we do need spaces for listening to one another mm. and like talking and having that dialogue and where it's not just talking at each other but also having a conversation with each other mm-hmm. because it's not something that we see all the time mm-hmm. everyone's also either busy <laughs> to the excuses next yeah yeah or reasons mm-hmm, or just distracted distracted very yes. distracting mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Just the, just the next, 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 next. Yes. Or on that. And what I'm kind of fearful is the lack of communication between generations, too. Mm-hmm. Like from the younger generation to the older and having those stories lost. Mm. Um, mm. And we're, like within our own families, mm-hmm. too, right? Like what were the experiences of our own families? And then yeah. we go into these dialogues and these studies of intergenerational trauma of like what does that imp- what are the implications of that but how do we know if we don't even know our own lolo's lola stories yes yeah um that brings me to another piece that yes. i wanted to yes, yes. to share um that was actually published in tayo magazine i wanted to shout them mm. out um but it's actually about my grandma mm. um i don't know you did your extensive research so maybe you saw it already well. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, here it is. Shout out to Tayo Magazine. Mm-hmm. Isn't is Janice part of it? She is. She's, she's one of the founders and founders. editors. Yes. Um. So yeah, this one actually is perfect. This is about. I so context is I live with my grandma, um, in the inner sunset. She's lived in her same apartment for like forty-seven years now. Yeah. Um. I used to come every summer and stay with her. Um, and that's why I grew a love for the Bay Area and why I wanted to settle in the Bay Area. Oh, um, okay, okay. So you had already experiences here in San Francisco before going even to college? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Um, through my grandma, spending time with her in the city. Um, and, and this is your mom's side? My dad's side. Your dad's side. Is this the single yes. parent one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so... The crazy other thing is that she and I are born on the same day. Oh, what? Uh-huh. I'm her only granddaughter. Um, so, you know, I've now been living her with her for seven years um, since I moved here for grad school. And we've gone through our ups and downs, which I never anticipated. Um, because I think I, I, she sees a lot of me in her and vice versa. So it's a lot of this learning and fighting ourselves within each other um that this kind of plays on to so mm. it's called but violence that be mm. um i don't go into it there is a spiritual warfare happening on 10th and irving in apartment one you probably couldn't tell from the silence sit still long enough and you can almost hear the power shifting listen hard enough and you will hear she is breaking my heart grandma doesn't quite love like san francisco But sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the fog and her love. Growing up, I often got the two of them confused. It's difficult to tell if I find home in this city or in her. Both are beginning to fade. Both are looking different as the days move forward. Colonized mouths tell me reconstructed city culture. I hear gentrification. Grandma is convinced of dementia. 
I just know her body is no longer strong enough to carry the weight of our women. Weight she expects me to carry. Was not given the tools from her mother on how to teach me kindly. Now this is a burden she is beating into my back. So I am calling on the Babylons that be. Our shamans, our ancestors, our healers. Because there is a spiritual warfare happening on 10th and Irving in apartment 1. She often remains quiet with her occasional attacks. I keep closed mouth and often retreat to respect. She has given me resiliency, has given me Hawaii and Pearl City, has given me the Philippines and Bohol, has given me San Francisco, apologizes with homemade chocolate chip cookies, massages me with mangoes and coconut milk, mungo bean soup, has begun to feed me her hurt and her trauma, and I hate it. Do not want to continue the bloodline in this way. Do not want to be like her bitterness, nor like this city that is losing its spirit. So I'm trying to heal grandma, me, and this city all at once. I am exhausted. I am scared to lose her. It means losing me. I am next in line. I am choosing to reject it. I am not ready for this responsibility. So I am calling on the Babylons that be. How does one watch the things they love slowly fade and die in front of their eyes? When the shift has come, will I be so numb? I wonder, will I even cry? Am I holding on tight enough to her? Fighting hard enough for this city? Will I have anything to hold on to soon? San Francisco losing her memory to upgraded parks and five-story condos. Grandma losing her memory as the sun sets golden on her closing gates. The fog is beginning to slowly roll in now. Hard to see the signs. The city, she is hazy now. I worry the fog will never lift. I worry she won't look the same if it ever does. I worry I was not the granddaughter I was supposed to be, but violence that be, I worry, but all I can do is prepare. Thank you for sharing. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. But yeah. Yeah, so I wrote that piece when she and I were really going through just not understanding each other and not hearing each other. Um, and it took me that grace and stepping back and remembering to base myself in love for my grandma. Mm. Um, and it wasn't perfect every day. Again, like it's not a perfect practice. There were days where I would tell my mom, I just like cannot understand her mom. I just want to leave. Mm. But o the overall process of it, I really learned that, you know, she's had things happen in her life that she she didn't major in psychology. She's not a major in counseling. She doesn't have a community of other woke mm -hmm. community organizers to cry with her and mm -hmm. hold her. She just had herself. Mm -hmm. And she was abandoned by her mom and left by the man that she loved that she now has to raise a son by herself. Um, and through all those things, I have to take it's almost like that responsibility again as that bridge i have to take her pain and hold that for her and kind of transform it into something that will be beneficial to take and inherit to the next generations mm -hmm. um and that takes a lot of work again it exhausts me to be honest that's it's not an easy commitment to take that energy and that trauma and be able to relearn it and repackage it mm. for a future generation. Mm. Um, and that's why cycles continuously happen because it's an easier thing to check out. It's an easier thing to just keep it going mm -hmm. in the status quo of how things mm -hmm. have been. Um, but I think that's what the Bay Area just attracts, you know, our community 
to be like these game changers in our community and education, but in our families too. Um, so, yeah. I think it's even harder in families. Like you're putting yourself in there too. And that's like where the real community organizing actually has to happen. Like that's all our community real. organizing, it's almost training just for us to actually go, go back home. to our families and do the work there yes <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think education all these tools and all to actually embody it in within the home and to realize how we have been affected ourselves mm. and then transform that yeah it's so heavy but also so freeing mm -hmm. once you're able to go through that process but it is true it's not like a snap of the finger everything's okay mm -hmm. but damn just like thinking of yeah the experience of a woman that is left has to raise her uh, son alone mm -hmm. and all that but yo props for attempting right right and going through the process mm -hmm. and thanks for sharing and being open because those are narratives i feel have to be at the forefront of our community discussions so that other people within their own homes have the encouragement and also just even the vision of the possibility mm. that transformation is possible. Yes. Right. Within our own families. Oh, yes. Because sometimes we're like, we don't really think, oh, that's just old dog no doesn't learn new tricks. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. But like, I've personally seen changes in my mama, like through our own dialectic relationship that's just real so true and i think it's easy for community organizers educators to preach all this stuff and put it externally right like you're saying to go out there and do this stuff and then they come home and they ain't right yeah um so just like i said in that speech you know the hurt people hurt people like mm. i when people are like you do amazing work you do good work how do you do it like i do good work because i do good work here mm. i do good work there because i do good work here mm. um and again back to self love back to self like it is about making sure you are as best as you can be with yourself and if you aren't it's okay to step back mm. and do the work you need to the communities will always be there. The work will always be there. <laughs> um, and then, like you said, the best work you can do is here and in your home. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yo, snaps to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were reading it, it was making me think of my Lola, mm -hmm. who's down in L.A. Is she, is your Lola gang, you mentioned dementia? No, my she, grandma she yeah. is she tells herself she's having dementia oh, that's really? what i say she convinces herself she's like she left the water running oh i have dementia <laughs> okay grandma you have dementia <laughs> but i i feel like it's like her her giving herself a reason to to stay in her mm. her weight and her heaviness i have a question how come you don't um it doesn't seem that you publicize your poetry that much in the sense of like <laughs> making a video and putting it out there sometimes you post stuff and then you take it down i do and then i know i'm like <laughs> and i try to find it again sometimes i was like oh that's dope i'll like it or save and then if i want to look at it again it's gone Aww. but then like for example like a video right you have a lot you have a catalog of stuff but in terms of like 
putting it out there, you don't seem to, mm-hmm. right? Unless it's recorded by the actual event organizer. By someone right? else recording yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, right? that's the one I found, right? <laughs> uh, but how come? I, you know, I think that's one of those things like I'm getting in my own way. Um, it, I think I can put myself out there and then it feels too uncomfortable and then I want to take it back. And that's why it's been my goal. It's something, you know, that's where I look to like Janice and I admire her so much. She's just doing her thing and Mm -hmm. putting her books out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I started initially writing on paper, so, but I've never put anything out there. I think, you know, maybe it's that thing of, I don't want it to be, live if i put it if i publish it it's real like you can keep that forever and you can pass it on and you know and the why wouldn't i want that but i think my own human fear is but i it's so close to me am i ready to put that out there and that's why i've made it my goal at my 30th year um to publish a book with just like i'm like you know what fuck it if I'm gonna publish I'm just gonna just put everything I've written into a book and here you all go uh-huh, uh-huh. go ahead and like snapshot it like Nyaria Wahid go ahead like but yeah I guess like you know to put it out there like that you have to kind of be your own promoter and it, yeah. it's a hard thing for me maybe that comes from my like culture yeah. and it's hard to promote ourselves like that um but that's my goal my goal yes, is yes. to publish by May 17th that's my birthday so yes and I fully support. I, I'm pushing for it. I, I want to see it. I've been waiting. And like, I also think about it in a way of that responsibility, not to put pressure mm-hmm. or anything, mm-hmm. but like right. the responsibility to be that person that other people can see themselves in. Yes. And to be able to put it out there to mm-hmm. like, like, shit i saw myself in ruby abara right like yo and that had very transformative even thoughts and experiences Mm -hmm. so as people who have the capacity and beautiful work Mm -hmm. i would like i want to see it so i'm just saying that selfishly because i want to see that shit yeah i I appreciate that i think i've needed to hear that actually because i've kind of stepped back from the the scene Mm. for a while even like performing i don't really perform that much anymore and i think i was using and it it was real but i was using the the reasoning of i just work so much you know Mm -hmm. i was like Mm -hmm. really i was really involved in that again it's like one of those things of what can you sacrifice but i've been feeling this pull back to getting out there and writing again um and that's where i think i do have a special calling in terms of poetry is that i can publish it but i i do speaking in my own power into existence i do feel like i have a power of being able to make my words come to life um so i do need to to get out there and and like you said be that example because there are not a lot of panais that are on like that kind of level Mm -hmm. um because we are often so busy doing other community work and mm. in our families. Um, mm. But yeah, hopefully I get to another May, season. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, we accountability. <laughs> accountability. So March is the RTSV where you have the flyers for the release the book release? for May. I was thinking, okay. I was thinking, you know, it'd be great is to for my birthday, my 30th birthday, the way I can celebrate is to have a book release party. Yes! Uh, Yes, please. <laughs> and then oh we'll have like god. lots of people come and do their own readings. Yes, that you be included. So awesome. Oh my god, that would be great. <laughs> no. All right, you have seven months. Okay, uh, let yeah. me go. I gotta uh, go now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think 
I wanted to actually bring it up. Maybe what has kept you busy too, because you seem to be also able to be more confident in putting it out. Your photography. Yes. And you actually said the about your photography oh that gosh, you fa- it's a way to express a narrative that the words I put together could not. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit like why? What do you mean? Like how do you feel about photography that is not um, like answered by? words or writing mm. or by poetry because mm-hmm. that's like that's props to you, you know? for doing all your research i know you also went on to my own like self website so i'm giving that to you too <laughs> <laughs> so i got into photography one but on a whim um but also oh, let me let me uh close this because in case it's starting to die if i need to be. um but i got into photography almost because i was sick of words mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I am such a creative because of that, I know. It's like the creative, like, I'm sure you could relate. Like, you get bored after a while with doing one thing for so long. Um, and I was just get, getting sick of talking all the time, getting sick of, like, expressing myself verbally. That at some point, like, I just wanted to shut up and express myself like, let me just be able to express myself without having to explain it all the time. Mm. Um, yeah, and so that's how I started getting into, like, taking photos of people, um, taking photography classes. Um, I I really love Frida Kahlo. Um, so she, a big thing that Frida Kahlo was known for is her self-portraits. And so that's what I really loved using photography for. I felt like, you know, selfies is one thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of culture. But I loved taking self-portraits in these artistic ways of myself to capture moments and, and, and uh emotions that I was going through. Um, if I can make myself vulnerable in a way of words, I can do it through t- making myself vulnerable in the way of visual presentation as well. Um, so I was also, that's actually something that I want to get back into eventually too, is self-photography and self-portraits. Um, and But yeah, to tell other people's stories. Like for some reason, people love the photography I take. So I was like, okay, people would ask me to take photos of them. So it's like, sure. Then I've, eventually people were saying I'll pay you to do it and I was like wow this is great so I love to do the same for other people I love to take photos of people to tell who they are and Mm -hmm. and to expose us uh, us brown and black folks Mm -hmm. in a way that is different than the narrative that is mainstream and that is out there Mm. so it seems a lot of your work both written and visual is like a counter narrative to the mainstream like expectations of what or stereotypes Mm -hmm. of what black brown people are or should be yeah um and another way to think of that is also i'm just trying to provide the narrative of what i know Mm. um and maybe because that that can get exhausting too it's like i'm always giving an alternative counteractive narrative like sometimes at the at the heart of it i'm just trying to provide mine Mm. um i just want to be able to tell my story give my perception of what i how i see the world Mm. um and and that i believe can be enough as well is that therapeutic for you oh hell yeah (laughs) (laughs) it feels good right yes yeah let me just speak myself into existence Mm -hmm. because sometimes it is also like a lot of pressure to be the representative of the filipino (laughs) and to be the penai what do penais think kim (laughs) yeah and i like you have that like also that back like voice like 
is that the right am I saying the right thing yeah. you're recording this am I saying <laughs> yeah. the right thing am I gonna get shit for this later was I not supposed to cuss Did yeah. I, was I not supposed to say that was I not supposed to talk about like black people in a certain way all these different things and like if I can ground myself and like you know what I started doing this I started putting myself out there for me uh. at the end of it and I started putting myself out there because I was suffocating myself. Um, just like you talked about those statistics of mm. the, the Filipino youth having suicidal ideation. That was me. Mm. And I had to start putting these this stuff out there that I, I had to create because I needed to get it out. And then I had to put it out there because I couldn't keep holding it in. Mm. Um, and then it just started, like over the years, like building into this weird reputation and expectation like I was telling you as we were sitting down and starting to just get ready I was like it's crazy for me to have people know who I am even on the small level and then I don't know them but like when you put yourself out there in various forms whether it's a podcast or it's you know an app or something like how you can speak to people by just putting yourself out there when it started for you usually mm. you just wanted to start doing it cuz you wanted to do it coming back to the home um yeah it's therapeutic and healing um i think i'm in this place as a creative and an artist where because i did that for so long and it was so impactful now people are looking to me um to explain it. And I'm in this like state of teaching and mm. mentoring and processing, mm. um, which has kind of been for the last couple of years. Um, I'm hoping to get to a space again one day where I can create again. Mm. Um, but I'm also loving and feeling very privileged and honored to be in a space to teach um, mm. and to explain my process. Because I think that's what we're talking about as a lot of a lot of people are looking for, yeah, you have this like end goal, you have this thing, but what is the process? Like at least what is, has been your process so mm -hmm. I can at least take some things from it. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. Dope. It is a transition to mm -hmm. go into that like a leadership or like mentor mm -hmm. role, but at least you bring a lot, you have a lot to share. And I think that's important mm -hmm. to be able to share mm -hmm. in that aspect. And in context of sharing, I'd like to ask, um, uh, to wind down on the end, mm -hmm. um, three pieces of advice that if you were going to reflect on, and I like saying a younger you, but in different, it could be in different stages, whether it's the one who was shy mm -hmm. or said to be shy, mm -hmm. told to be shy in high school, who, mm -hmm. who was shy that they couldn't do a piece in their room unless the light is <laughs> off, right? Uh, the two advice that you felt uh, to a younger um, Pinay uh, or Filipina who um, may not be even in touch with hers yet, but finding it out in grad school. What are three pieces of advice? Mm or the from Kim Dabal? I would say um, enjoy the moment, hmm. even the hard moments. Like, it sounds weird, but enjoy those too because, um, you know, it's all part of it. It's all part of the process that you will be fine eventually. So enjoy it. Be present. Um, don't get whisked away in the anxiety of things or that things aren't planning out like you had wanted. Um, I think... Know your worth. Know you are at the heart of it. Flatline. I don't. I shouldn't have to tell you that you are worthy. And with that, create your boundaries. Um, know your worth, and know that with worth comes what you will and will not tolerate from others and from yourself. And the last is just be completely raw, unapologetic, and authentic, mm. because there is nobody like you. 
There's nobody that can bring to the table, that can bring to a podcast what you can bring. Mm. Every single person, um, you have something unique. So just go out there and be completely who you are. Don't say sorry and don't need, feel the need to explain. Mm. Thank you. What Could I ask a little expounding? How does one find or know their worth? What does that entail? I think, yeah, that's a great question. I think you know your worth by taking risk. By, by taking risk of your, putting your voice out there, putting yourself out there, trying something and getting hurt and failing or having it not work out, but then you're fine. Or you put yourself out there, you make those risks, and it works. Mm. And through failure and success and accomplishment, through both of them, just like through fear and love, you find who you are. And the more you can do that and the more you see that you always come out in one piece and you're okay and that you'll heal and if you know that you'll you'll be fine, then that's where the worth comes in. Knowing that I've been through some things, but I'm I'm stronger for them. Or I've been through it, and I achieved this. Mm. Um, so yeah, so just like the the just like my name, they, they say the acronym K I M. Keep it moving. So I'm hey. always like keep it moving forward. Keep on going. Um, you'll find your worth as you keep moving forward. Hey, keep it moving down below. I like it. (laughs) Could you bless us with another piece? Yeah. To close it out. Yeah, I have a perfect last piece. Um, It's actually a short one, so um, hopefully that's okay. Um, But it's something that speaks to me even now. It's called What My Ancestors Whisper. What My Ancestors Whisper. You have an obligation to keep writing. To keep churning the autumns into winters and winters into spring, you have the duty to tell the moon's lessons and your mother's beloved, to tell how we fought, wounded, and bled. A woman like you was given a womb full of stories, and our stories must be birthed and brought to life. Woohoo! That that is perfect to to <laughs> that's your advice for your book. That should, that should be at the beginning. Be, yeah, that's like this is the reason why I wrote my book. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to the book. Thank you very Thank much you, for Thank coming you so on. Much. This was dope. This was a blessing. Yes. And poetry is really fucking therapeutic. Mm. I'm gonna cut up all the audio for it, and then that's just gonna be like therapy one, therapy two. <laughs> you can yeah, you can la- label it as yo. It's very relaxing to listen to, to listen that to. shit. Then yeah. after the sell the book, we're gonna put out audio book. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> so, thank awesome. you, Kim. Thank you, Christian. <laughs>